Welcome back to WVU Reads, the podcast of the WVU Humanities Center. My name is Jeff Hilsebeck. I've lost track of what number episode this is. That's a good thing, because it means we've done a lot of them at this point. The show is finding its listeners, too. We topped 600 downloads a couple weeks ago. People are listening not just here on campus, and not even just here in West Virginia, but across the world with listeners on three continents. Thanks for being with us, Syria. I've invited Dr. Christina Fattori from the Political Science Department into the studio today to talk about her experience as a first-generation college and graduate student. Certainly, Tara Westover's experiences as a first-generation college student are unique for a whole variety of reasons, but I wondered if there were universal elements to her story as well. One of the themes of this show has been the ways that education is transformative. We've talked a lot about how education, whether it's formal or informal, can transform individuals by making them better readers and so empowering them to interpret the world around them, by exposing them to new ideas and people, by connecting them to their passions. But we haven't talked a whole lot about the transformational power of education for families, communities, and society as a whole. People with a bachelor's degree earn roughly $2.27 million over the course of their lifetime, which is a full million dollars more than those with only a high school diploma. That gap is growing. For each person who graduates with that bachelor's degree are several more people who benefit from those added earnings. Parents, children, extended family, as well as neighborhoods and communities, which benefit not only from the taxes the college graduate pays, and the money they spend in the community, but in less tangible, but no less real ways, also. And yet, colleges and universities are admitting fewer students from poor backgrounds, not more. In 2014, graduates who came from households with incomes of at least $116,000, the top quarter, represented more than half of all the degrees awarded among 24-year-olds. Meanwhile, students from households that earned less than $35,000, the lowest quarter, represented a mere 10% of all the degrees awarded. I'll talk with Dr. Fattori about these tangible and intangible benefits that come with an education and the effects it has not only on individuals, but on their larger communities. Dr. Fattori is an associate professor in political science and is affiliated with the International Studies Program. Her research focuses on international trade behavior, as well as the status of women in the disciplines of international relations and political science. Recently, her work has been featured on CBS News, CNBC, and Fox Business News, as well as in Time magazine. Dr. Fattori was also the first person in her family to attend college and the first to receive a Ph.D. Dr. Fattori, welcome to WVU Reads. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I was hoping we could start uh, just by having you introduce yourself and telling people what you do here on campus. Okay. I'm Christina Fattori. I'm an associate professor in the political science department. I'm also affiliated with the International Studies Program. Um, I've been at WVU for 13 years now. Well, I would be curious how you got interested in international relations. Okay. So... I'm a first-generation American. My family emigrated from Italy in the 1960s. And so growing up, I feel like I had more more of a global outlook to begin with. Mm-hmm. I still have family in Italy. I have family in Canada. Mm-hmm. What part of Italy? Um, I My family is from Puglia, which is in southern Italy, literally right above the heel of the boot. Okay. Um, it's if you know anything about southern Italy, it's incredibly impoverished. It's very um, farm based. Uh, mm-hmm. They're trying now for more tourism. It sounds a lot like West Virginia. Uh-huh. It's funny. I've had Italian students who basically are like, "So your family's from the West Virginia of Italy?" And yes, mm. they are. But my grandmother and my mom. Uh, always watched the news. So I grew up in a single family uh, or single parent home. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after my grandfather died, we moved in with my grandmother. Um, And so we always like, I remember every night watching the news and being so darn bored with it. And then Mm. finally it became interesting to me. Mm. It became interesting to me. And I think I kind of grew into it. Mm -hmm. And so when I went to college, um, I took my first semester. I remember taking a comparative politics class, which focused on, different types of governments around the world. And that really kind of sealed the deal. Yeah. 
So it it sounds like unlike unlike Terra Westover, there was the, the world was very present in your house, yes. and you had a sense of of the world being a large and complicated yes. place, much bigger than. And where are you? Where, where was this that you were growing up? I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which okay. is about an hour north of Philadelphia. Uh-huh. So growing up, my mom, you know, interesting background because I I recognize the poverty in this story as well, which. Um, my mom did not become a millionaire. Yeah, and educated. Uh-huh. So my mom did not end up becoming a millionaire. Yeah. But um, when I was born, my mom uh, actually wasn't working and was on welfare. And yeah. she was on welfare for probably about like the first five or six years of my life. And then when I went to school, she got a job. And growing up, I mean, my mom had one job the whole time when I was in grade school, high school, yeah. college. What was that? Uh, she cleaned the dorms at Lehigh University. Oh, okay. And so um, Bethlehem's a really interesting place. There's a lot of history there. And I grew up in South Bethlehem, which mm-hmm. is more of a a more um, poverty-ridden side of town. Yeah. But it's also like the, the kind of neighborhood abuts Lehigh University. Yeah. And Lehigh is this gorgeous Gothic campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, the idea of these kids that could afford to go there. My mom always dreamed that I would go to Lehigh. um, And I really got pushed uh, a lot, number one, from my mom to be like, you are not going to clean toilets like Mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. Um, You're going to get an education. You are going to dress up every day to go to work, which I'm wearing jeans today. So she might cringe at that. I think she knows what I wear to work. You're in the rage. Yeah, exactly. It's fine. But I got that push. um, And I think the proximity to... Lehigh, as well as like my mom would come home and tell me stories about the kids in her dorms. And there were some kids that were awful and there were some kids who were fantastic. Mm. Um, in terms of how they related yes, to her? Yes. And so that that just drove me. Like it drove yeah. me to um, like college was never a question. Yeah. We've got you in college now. So let's yep. talk about that. So that you were the, sounds like the first person in I your was. family to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and those cousins, did they go to college also? None of the cousins that I grew up with. Okay. Um, so I have two younger cousins who did end up going to college. Mm-hmm. So uh, Tara Westover's experience as a first generation college student is obviously not typical Mm-mm. and there's a lot of factors that go into making that experience challenging for her uh, but it sounds like there are things that were familiar to you yes in the book yes. so I'd love to hear about those well I uh, I think that the relationship she had with her brother Sean really resonated with me um, in a in a couple of different ways uh, it, it was a little disappointing when Sean became so violent towards her yeah um, because like that was not my experience, but you know, I had older cousins that were, you know, 10, 11, 12 years older than me that growing up, they were just so wonderful to me. They were yeah. wonderful. And, um, you know, they always teased me and they encouraged me. And then when, you know, as I got older, I remember my one cousin, we take, we all took very different paths, but my one yeah. cousin, um, was in prison for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a drug problem and all the fun stuff that goes along with that. And when he came out, um, I was just about to graduate high school. And I remember he was like incredibly encouraging and came to my high school graduation. And I have pictures with him. And and then after I went to college and during college, he, not him necessarily, but like like him and like some of the people around his age, like my cousins around his age, like it, it was, you know, was I being uppity? Was uh-huh. I, I was, I was definitely moving away from the family. Yeah. And I think that my outlook on things, um, how can I put it? The knowledge I was gaining and my career path and what I wanted to do yeah. was taking me away from them. Yeah. And there is this, uh, I'll, find it um there's this great quote in here that just totally resonated with me let's see if i can right and this is something that i kind of carry with me all through um all through my adulthood but at the end of the book she says but vindication has no power over guilt no amount of anger or rage directed at others can subdue it because guilt is never about them guilt is about the fear of one's own wretchedness it has nothing to do with other people Hmm. and i really think that a lot of my relationship with some of my older cousins that it's not easy going. Um, I rarely see them anymore. Um, cause 
a number of different reasons, but when I do interact with them, it's just so different. It's like yeah. we didn't grow up with each other. Yeah. Um, and, and so that makes me really sad, but I've also, it's exhausting to try to be two different people. Yeah. And I think Tara Westover talks about that. Um, it's exhausting to be two different people. It's exhausting to have to try to fit in with what someone thinks you should be because of how you grew up and the similar background. Um, but also your own life experiences. Mm -hmm. And so I find myself, it's really funny when I do go home. Um, like I have certain cousins and certain aunts and uncles who like embrace me. They yeah. love, they love that I've achieved so much and that they recognize that I'm really not that different than yeah. what I was as a kid and where I came from. And I don't forget that, but I do have some cousins who are, how can I put it? Like, like, and it is a reflection of their own, their own fear of themselves and how maybe they think that I'm judging them, but I'm not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I would be curious what it, what it is, first of all, that, you know, when you, you described coming back home mm -hmm. at, when you were way back when you were in college and starting to feel that separation yes. and sort of this uppity sense of being uppity or something, was mm -hmm. that, was that a matter of, um, like things that you said or a way of talking that was different or was it your politics? Or, oh, I think or, number one, it was my politics. Was, okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, uh, so definitely this idea of, how can I put it? Like I really latched on to um, like feminism when I went away to college. Mm -hmm. And I think that was something that my mom actually, and that's the thing. My mom and I have this really great relationship. Um, my mom, because she encouraged me and we never had this divide that Tara Westover has with her family, uh, not just from education, but also religion and, and their own issues. Yeah. But I think it is, you know, I think some people think it's just disappointing that other people have a chance, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I was afforded an opportunity because I worked hard, because I was encouraged, and, and also because luck of the draw. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I mean, why did Gettysburg offer me so much money? I couldn't tell you, right? Mm -hmm. What was it in my packet? What What is it in anyone's packet that makes them stand out? Yeah. Who knows? Um, and there's also, you know, there's also this kind of, of attitude, and, and I've had this throughout my life where people say, oh, well, you got this because your mom was a single mom, or you got this because mm. you're a woman, or, mm. you know, you got this. I mean, I had someone say that when I got my job here, that I only got this job because I was a woman. And I was like, okay, cool. It has nothing to do with working hard, yeah. um, getting publications, things like that. Um, but there is a type of of luck that goes along with of it course. as well. Yeah. Um, and so why me and not any of my other cousins? Yeah. Well, you know, their parents were different than mine. Yeah. Um, I also think that, and, and this is my own experience and my family boys have a lot more freedom. I was uh -huh. the only girl in that like age group. <laughs> and so I feel like the boys had a lot more freedom and to go and do things. And my mom ruled a very, um, very rigid house yeah, right yeah. and i had a lot of rules about what i could do what i couldn't huh. do um i you know my mom was also very catholic um and so there was a lot of rules with that i went yeah. to catholic school all my life and um and so yeah i mean there's just so many factors that play into it and i think my cousins especially some of my older cousins were expecting me to trip up and like fall along the way mm. or lose my path. Um, and when I didn't, it was just like this animosity just kind of grew. Mm. Oh, like they, yeah. they kind of didn't want you to succeed. Oh, I think there's there's at least one of them that definitely didn't. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like they felt that, or at least in, in the book, her family seems to feel it as a betrayal Yeah, when, when she goes to school. I, I think that... I don't, I honestly couldn't speak for them. Like yeah. I can only talk about my own perceptions, but I don't know if it was seen as a betrayal. Um, I think it was more of a, like, 
uh, maybe like we're not good enough for you. Like yeah. you can't live in Bethlehem for your whole life. You have to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And even when I was on the job market coming out of grad school, um, the Lehigh Valley has an insane amount of colleges and universities there. And they're like, why can't you find a job here? Why yeah. do you have to live in West Virginia five well, hours right. away? Right? right. And nobody understands yes. how the academic job market works. That's right. Right. Yeah, that you're just picked up and dropped somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can yeah, I mean, kind you're of lucky control. you got pretty close to home. I know. Five hours is a lot better than what it could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so, so, so you went to college and you became a feminist. I, I, I think I was a feminist before I went to college. Okay. I think it became a lot more pronounced. Yeah. When I was in college, I became a lot more politically active in college. Okay. Yeah. And that's true of Tara Westover, not takes her till she gets to graduate school. But um, Although, you know, uh, I really struggled with part of this in oh, the book. Yeah. Um, when she talks about being at Cambridge and reading Betty Friedan and how she's like, I could only get through a page of these books and I had to shut it and I just couldn't connect with it. And so I think there's a type of rejection of modern feminism as well. Um, In the book. In the book Mm. uh, from from Tara Westover. Mm. And I might have read it wrong, maybe not, but there is... No, I don't think so. No, I I think that there is still this, and and I hear this from so many people about... Mm -hmm struggling with identifying as a feminist and and i'm like all right if you want to keep being scared of that word go for it um but there were aspects that came out um when she talked about like the plural marriages and things like Mm -hmm. that but just this rejection of like oh i just can't get through these books they're just you know so i can read abstruse mormon texts but i can't (laughs) yeah it's something that um when lynn stahl was on here uh we talked a little bit about Tara Westover's um, feminism and her seeming unwillingness to think about her own situation with her and to think about her brother and her father yeah. in light of that feminism. Yes. Um, and the sort of larger structural issues at play yes. in her life. Yes. I mean, and, and her mother, I mean, the situation that her mother found herself in, I really struggled with with the mother in this book because at the beginning it seemed like the mom pushed back so much more against the dad. Um, especially my favorite or one of my favorite parts was when she was learning uh, midwifery and she was like, okay, I delivered a baby. If I ever have to deliver a baby again, I can do it. I never need to do it unless I have to. And the dad just pushed her. And I feel like there was, there was so much where, like opportunity for her to stand up and like that spark was always there and somehow it got snuffed out every time. I know. So it was just funny. It it wasn't funny. It was, it was frustrating. I think that it was there, right? It was there. And then she just kind of, I mean, I don't know if her mom just kind of gives up on herself. Um, but like towards the end when her mom is just like, just do what you need to do, right? Do what you need to do to stay in the family, to make your dad happy, all this and that. She still doesn't kind of recognize it as feminism. I mean, at some point it becomes, it's sort of Tara versus Sean as the abuse is coming out. And she definitely sides with Sean. Yes. And it is hard to understand that. It's hard to understand, but I also understand from an abusive, violent perspective Mm -hmm. that... You know, we didn't read about Tara's dad abusing Tara's mom. We don't know if it was there, but there there is clearly something there that is keeping her from from speaking out against Sean. Yeah, or even a fear. I mean, it's it's awful to to think about fearing your own children. I know. But, I mean, it was there. Yeah, and we see how Sean uses the threat of violence uh, yeah. with Tara, and we have to assume that's not limited to Tara. Yeah, and it's not just a threat. I mean, he's followed through so many times. that's true. Um, Well, let's talk about those student loans Ah. for a second. uh, (laughs) Because that is a big part of Tara Westover's experience, and I I think probably a common one for a lot of particularly people who are first-generation college students. Yes. um, That she really struggles financially, and it really affects her experience of school. And it isn't until she gets those loans that she can kind of feel free to be curious yes. and to yes. pursue ideas. And Although to, I didn't have a bishop in my background saying, here's some money to help <laughs> know, you out, right? That was that was good. Um, so I'm just going to read very briefly. Sure. So this is from the chapter I'm from 
Idaho. I have the large print edition, so uh, this is the, the, the chapter 23. Um, so she says here, I was an incurious student. That's, this is when she's at BYU, and she's working at the campus creamery, and she's really struggling financially. I was an incurious student that semester. Curiosity is a luxury reserved for the financially secure. My mind was absorbed with more immediate concerns, such as the exact balance of my bank account, who I owed how much, and whether there was anything in my room I could sell for 10 or $20. I submitted my homework and studied for my exams, but I did so out of terror of losing my scholarship should my GPA fall a single decimal, not from real interest in my classes. So that, I think, is a common enough experience for students oh, yeah. here. Um, and one that's largely invisible, I mm-hmm. think, to people who aren't having that experience. Yes. So um, I certainly am curious about your experience because you, you mentioned your student loans, but also your experience here as a professor yes. and someone who you've been here, what did you say, 13 years? 13 years. So you have a good <laughs> sense of the student body. Yes. yes. Um, and a particular perspective as a first generation academic. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that something you see, he, you, you've oh, seen yeah. here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I struggle with it um, because, and I realize what a unique situation I was in when I was in college. Um, my first year in college, I think I took out about $2,500, which is like nothing compared to what others have taken out. I remember I have a friend um, who she too uh, came from a poor background um, and she she graduated from Gettysburg with like thirty or $40,000 in loans. Yeah. And when I left Gettysburg, because I had multiple jobs, um, I really did not have that burden. Most of my student loans came from graduate school. But um, I also worked, I worked three jobs. Um, I was federal work study. Uh, so I worked, I worked that, which I think was like 10 or 15 hours a week. Um, then I worked, as an RA, I was a resident assistant for three years and that paid for my room and board. Mm-hmm. Um, and because we were a traditional liberal arts school, like 90% of students lived on campus. Yeah. So living in a dorm for four years was not so out of the ordinary. So I didn't have to pay for rent, yeah. um, which is nice. Uh, I didn't have to pay for cable. I didn't have to pay for my phone. Everything was all included. And same thing with my my meals, right? Yeah. That was just it was just there because I put the work into it. Yeah. And then I also worked um, on campus in the student activities office. And I remember the first time I, I felt so out of touch. I remember I walked in there the first time and the student worker desk had a Mac. And I was like, what the heck am I supposed to do with this? And it was an old school Mac. Hmm. Um, I mean, this is like 1998. Uh, And so I was like, what the heck am I supposed to do with this? And I remember just feeling so out of place because I never had a computer until I went to college. Um, And I actually used my graduation money that I got from my family to buy a computer. Um, And I took computer classes in in, in high school but it was not a Mac. And so I basically, I was like, okay, I got this job. I can't screw it up and I got to figure this out. But I worked three jobs and they were, they were all on campus. And I feel like all the jobs that I had helped me in some way prepare for the future. Because my work study job was actually in the political science department. I was working for my advisor as a research assistant. So it was wonderful. I... Students here at WVU, um, you know, they live off campus. They have to pay rent. Some of them have parents that help them out with rent, which is great. Uh, But how many students do I see that are working at Kroger or working at restaurants? Yep. Um, Working fast food. Yeah, working fast food. Uh, (laughs) I feel like I run into a lot of people with my kids. Um, But either their bosses aren't – aren't considerate or don't care about their class schedule. Uh, I don't know how many students come into my office for undergraduate advising. And I say, I, I actually start out now with what are your time restrictions? Yeah. Um, because this is just the reality of what they work. When you imagine working at a fast food restaurant, uh, your hours are unstable. Yeah. I think, you know, yes. um, you don't necessarily 
have you're not told necessarily what your hours are going to be no. week to week or month yeah. to month. I had a student um, a couple years ago, and she's graduating this semester. Um, I think she's first gen. Um, she's from West Virginia, and she was working at a fast food restaurant on campus. And she came to me and basically was like, I don't know if I should go abroad because, you know, what if I lose my job here? They're talking about moving me up to assistant manager, all this and that. And I was like, you know what? They, she's like, I don't want to burn any bridges. And I was like, they would drop you in a second. Right. You are replaceable. Mm-hmm. And Thank goodness I said that to her because she ended up getting a born scholarship wow. and studying in Africa for, for a year. Um, and she's come back and she has such a great experience abroad. But I think back, I wonder if she even remembers this conversation. I remember it yeah. because she was so worried about her job yeah. at this restaurant on campus. Um, and and now she's, you know, she she's applying to graduate school and she's trying all these new things out. And I think it's just so fantastic. But I struggle – Um, I struggle with my students who say, you know, I can't come today because I have to work or I can't come today because I have an interview or something Mm -hmm. like that. And I was that student, but I also wasn't that student. So I had a lot more control over my schedule. Like I was able to tell people like, these are when my classes are when I, as an RA, like I had duty from nine to midnight at night, whatever. I'm not in class. Um, but I, I've started telling students and, and, you know, there's only so much grace that I can extend them. Um, but you know, if it's one night, it's fine. If, if this is an over and over and over again, occurrence, I I can't help you. You need to make a decision about what is working out. Yeah. Um, and that's the unfortunate truth of being a student who is first gen or impoverished in America, in West Virginia. Um, you are making these choices that other students don't have to make. Right. Yeah. And and there are structural issues there. Yeah. Too, and, because tuition is going up because, yes. you know, the university is, is getting less money from the state. And right. that's happening, obviously, everywhere. Yes. Um, and I think... You know, the university does a pretty amazing job at attempting to mitigate that and support students who are having to balance so many different things. Yeah. But it, it is hard, and I, I feel that, too, as an instructor. Yeah. Um, and, you know, your experience uh, in college working as an RA and and as a work, uh, 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 research assistant, mm-hmm. like, that work was so integrated into the experience that you yes. were having in college. And I... Um, I uh, I w- was a work study student also, and and there too. I mean, it was like it it was never like I left college. I went to right. a liberal arts college as well. My whole life was there. It was a completely immersive yes. experience, and I was working sort of, you know? <laughs> right? Uh, but uh, it's so it it can be hard for me to imagine what it's like to go to class and then take the bus up to wherever. Yep. Work fast food. Feel this sense of obligation to an employer. Yeah. There who has no concern about this other experience I'm, I'm, I'm having as a student. Yes. Then get to my apartment, wherever that is. And right. It's, and it's just very different it, kind of a college experience. It is. And I, I, my heart goes out to these students who work so hard to get a degree. One thing I try to do uh, with all my students, regardless of who they are, is, is encouragement. Yeah. Right. And I think Tara Westover had that a lot in this book. Right. Yep. The different professors who reached out to her. I mean, how many of them reached out to her and encouraged her. Right. And she talked about and, and I did not have this experience. I was not that person. But she talked about how professors were, um, you know, so different than her. And she didn't want to talk with any of the professors. And then finally, she went to talk with Professor Carey. Uh, and, and Professor Carey was really kind of her her turning point. He yeah. was he was really the guy who encouraged her. Um, but I, I had that. And yeah. how many of our students, I mean, how many of our students never come talk with us? I know, I know. You know? And that, that's, that's a very challenging thing. And I think, you know, in terms of what you're describing, like visit, visibility is very important for yes. faculty, if faculty are going to understand what the student experience is like, and the student experience is different for all 20 or 40 or 60 or however many students you have in a classroom. Right. Um, so making that experience visible is mm-hmm. important. Um, and I think there are ways of sort of incorporating things into your class 
classes yes. to do that, you know, student narratives or, but, you know, I will just encourage just over and over, please come to my office. Or if you can't get to class, please just communicate to me yep. what's happening. And that's just really hard for a lot of students to do. Yes. And I think, you know, sometimes that's sort of not their own fault that it is hard for them to do that. You right. Know? I agree. They, I agree. They understand there to be some kind of barrier between right. us. Yes. That, you know, I need to recognize. I mean, there is. A, I don't there's see a, it. There's a power structure, right? Sure. There's a power structure for there. Sure. I think one of the things that is challenging and about going to college, one of the ways in which students can experience culture shock is by encountering wealth, yes. like you're describing. Yes. Um, and so when I went to college, and I was, you know, I was fine, and I think I, I grew up going to museums, yeah. and, you know, there were a lot of books in the house, and my, my dad was a teacher, and my mom was an administrator at college, like, so that part of it was was not foreign to me, right? Um, but I went to a pretty fancy liberal arts college, and there was a, there was money there yes. that I hadn't really encountered before, um, and and that money also often in the ways in which that money had uh, sent uh, some of my classmates to private school. Oh yes, yes, uh, meant that you know there was a whole other way of being in classroom spaces especially yes. that was new to me and kind of very attractive but also strange so i can remember like my first semester of my freshman year being in a class and having a student call the teacher by his first name and like she put her feet up on the table you yeah. know? and i was like kind of shocked um, just because my expectations were so different and that's that's true of tara westover too especially when she goes to cambridge and i wanted to read another little passage. So this is in chapter 30. Um, So she's at Trinity College, and she says, she's describing her room. My room was directly opposite it. So we returned to the great gate. My room was directly opposite up three flights of stairs. After the porter left, I stood, bookended by my suitcases, and stared out my little window at the mythic stone gate and in otherworldly battle, and its otherworldly battlements. Cambridge was just as I remembered, ancient beautiful. I was different. Not a visitor, not a guest. I was a member of the university. My name was painted on the door. According to the paperwork, I belonged here. So she, her sense of, of, of belonging or not belonging in these kinds of spaces um, around money mm-hmm. is evolving, and she's getting more comfortable. But at the same time, she still can't quite feel at home there. So she says, I dressed in dark colors for my first lecture, hoping I wouldn't stand out. But even so, I didn't think I looked like the other students. I certainly didn't sound like them, and not just because they were British. Their speech had a lilting cadence that made me think of singing more than speaking. To my ears, they sounded refined, educated. I had a tendency to mumble, and when nervous, to stutter. I think that's just such a, you know, that's such a sort of perfectly phrased encapsulation of mm-hmm. the kind of alienation that people can experience I, I think, um, in, an, in a college or university. Oh, I think that imposter syndrome is rampant. That sense of belonging, I mean, I don't think it ever really goes away. Like I said, mm-hmm. uh, like you said, it kind of evolves, right? Yeah. And even, I mean, I think as an academic, I, I still sometimes struggle with it. I'm tenured. I shouldn't struggle with it. But I think there are a lot of times where, and and I just came back from a conference. A lot of times when I go to conferences, I'm like, these like some of these people went to Harvard or Yale for their PhD, and you know, are are they smarter than me? Did they have different opportunities than I did? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, does my Florida State degree mean any less than than their Harvard degree? And sometimes, you know, you do get that reaction where. Um, people look at your name badge and see you're from West Virginia University and they're like, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think part of it is finding where you belong, yeah. finding a good support system. Um, there's always people who have similar experiences than you do. And I think as a first-gen student, as a student who comes from a more lower-class background – um, you are hyper aware of the differences. One of the things I'm hearing you describe, particularly in, in terms of imposter syndrome, yeah. um, and certainly that's something we see Tara Westover mm-hmm. struggling with, uh, is that for you, for her, 
probably for a lot of students, connecting with something like con- connecting to whatever your passions are as a thinker yeah. is really important. You know, so when she finds what she's passionate about in school, mm-hmm. that's, I think, such a big part of her transformation. I mean, yes, it's, it, it, it's important that she gets money. And yeah. it's important that she has the support of faculty, but she also has this hunger that comes out right. for history um, and for um, and, f- and for philosophy, and that that drives her mm-hmm. so much. And it sounds like that was the case for you also that you kind of found this hunger for uh, what you know for comparative politics, yeah. and international relations, and that drove you all the way through college and into graduate school and onto the academic track. Yeah, and. And it's interesting because I think I I was always a bookish kid. Like Mm -hmm. I always had my nose in a book Um, and I loved knowledge and I loved learning. But I also think, and especially I think about it now, like this immense privilege we have to, to have this expertise, but to get paid to study something. So, and I don't want to say obscure, like I study international trade now um, Mm -hmm. and it's incredibly relevant in the world we live in, but you know, how many people understand the ins and outs of the WTO, right? Mm -hmm. Not many, even in political science, not many. Um, And so, and I laugh about it because, you know, some people are like, Oh God, that's so boring. How can you talk about trade all the time? And I'm like, I find it incredibly interesting. Yeah. Um, and was and so, that something that, it, like, in, in college that that? No, it was or? actually in graduate school. Okay. Um, so, funny story when I went to college, I thought I was going to be studying um, political parties in Western Europe. And when I found myself at Florida State, they had actually uh, lost a number of faculty. Florida State has a ton of turnover, which is good and bad. Um, but they lost like a good chunk of their comparative faculty. And so I was like, huh, well, I need a second field. What does international relations have going on? And I started taking these classes and I was like, I guess I can study war. I guess I can study conflict. Um, And then I took an international political economy class and I just fell in love. Hmm. I totally fell in love. I thought it was incredibly interesting. Um, And when I went to write my dissertation, um, I was torn between two topics. Uh, I ended up writing my dissertation on regional development in Southern Europe uh, and how the European Union influences development Mm -hmm. uh, and how the state kind of interjects itself between what goes on in Brussels and what goes on at the subnational region. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was also really interested in trade rivalries, which is hilarious because when I was writing my dissertation – 14, 15 years ago, trade rivalries weren't as relevant as yeah. they are today. Yeah. And so, so trade yeah, war. yeah. And so I, because uh, rivalries are a big thing in the conflict literature um, and kind of this context by which states interact with each other, yeah. like this animosity and this background. Um, and I was like, huh, what if we applied that to trade, right? Um, and then when it came down to choosing my dissertation topic, I was like, ah, I'm just going to write about development. Cool. Um, and then when I came to WVU, I was like, like after after I had kind of taken what I needed to out of my dissertation, I was like, I'm going to start studying trade. Yeah. And I, for the past like, wow, 10-ish years, 10, 11 years, like that's what I've been doing. And and it's just been so intriguing. It's yeah. so intriguing. Um, something that occurs every single day, right? Yeah. Um, people kind of dismiss it. I mean, and I've, I've gotten this, uh, this feedback a lot of, you know, trade is boring. Uh, nothing really happens in trade, which um, I always say like the one good thing about the Trump administration is that they've made my research incredibly relevant, but uh, you can't say that anymore. Yeah. Right. And, and I find it really funny in, political science and in international relations, especially international relations, students love studying about war and conflict. And it is such a rare event. War is not as yeah. common as you think it is. Um, but to study something that is a common event, they rather not. It's not yeah. It's not fun. Yeah. Um, and I totally admit to all of my classes that I'm so nerdy when it comes to, to trade and I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so much 
you know, we have to ask questions about why states cooperate. Like it's not enough to say why states don't cooperate, but also why they cooperate. So that really and, and came, what happens when they don't cooperate? Yeah, I and, suppose. And, yeah, and not you know the stories that we tell, and and that's the thing. Like uh, you know, a lot of the feedback I've gotten when I first started this project was, you know, we never see trade wars, right? We never yeah. see trade wars. Trade is all about cooperation. There's never non-cooperation. And here we are, yeah. right? Here we are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that all came from one class that I took in graduate school. Yeah. Um, and it just really piqued my interest. Yeah. Uh, the professor ended up becoming my dissertation chair. And so there's there's a lot, like that was something that I wasn't exposed to at Gettysburg. Um, and, you know, that's maybe one of the bad things about going to a small liberal arts school is that yeah. you don't have the opportunities that kids at like WVU do have to have multiple faculty uh, with multiple interests. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's kind of the experience and like I said, it's just such a privilege to be able to, to study something so in depth. It right? is. Yeah. Um, and, and I wanted to read just a, a little passage from the book because I think, she's at her most eloquent when she talks about her academic work. And I kind of wish she got into right. more detail about yeah. that. Um, because like we're saying, I think that's a big part of her personal growth and her personal journey yes. is her development as an intellectual. Um, but she described, you, you, you talked about the way that, um, that that piqued your interest mm -hmm. in, in graduate school and has um, continued to be, fascinating to you and, and that experience you know of encountering an idea or a field yeah. and it just touching some part of you that's going to just sustain you for years is so right. fascinating to me right. and I, it's an experience i want every student to have yes. you know and i do believe that everybody is capable ha of having that experience mm -hmm. and it's always interesting to me that that it's going to take such different forms for different people. I mean, I encountered Gertrude Stein when I was 18, and you know, and now I'm have been writing poetry for the yeah. last 18 years of my life. Um, so she's she she's talking. Um, so we're back at BYU now, and she says I'd come to BYU to study music so that one day I could direct a church choir. Mm -hmm. And and this is also something that's come up in in previous episodes that it is. It starts as a passion for music that drives her out of her house and yes. gets her to BYU, but it becomes a passion for something else. Mm -hmm. uh, but that semester, the fall of my junior year, I didn't enroll in a single music course. I couldn't have explained why I dropped advanced music theory in favor of geography and comparative politics or gave up sight singing to take history of the Jews. But when I'd seen those courses in the catalog and read their titles aloud, I had felt something infinite. And I wanted a taste of that infinity. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful description, I think, of, of just sort of intellectual life, you yes. know, and, and the draw of intellectual life as being almost religious, you know, because yeah. she has this religious background, so she casts her own ex intellectual experience in those terms. I feel like more students need that experience, and some of them need the encouragement to have that experience. Mm -hmm. Um I don't know how many, and I know in English it's a little different. Um, in political science, we each have a group of about twenty-five or thirty undergrads that are our advisees. Oh, okay. I mean, we, so you don't have a separate... we don't have a separate advisor. Yeah. Um, so I meet with students every semester, as do my colleagues, uh, to come up with their their um, schedule. And I am amazed. I am amazed when students come in, and they. I had one student come in last year honor student. And she said, you know, I really want to take this class on Black Mirror. I love that show. I think it's so fascinating, but it has nothing to do with international relations. And I said, cool, you need credits. You're going to need credits by the time you graduate. This is one of your honors classes. So it's actually contributing to something. Um, take this class. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you are, and, and, and I say this to all my students, like you are never going to have another time to try something new out, right? Yeah. Never. Uh, so take the class. I mean, when I was in, when I was an undergrad and, and I was someone who, how can I put it? I, I, I like to tell this story sometimes. Um, 
if I was independently wealthy and I was 17 again and applying for college, uh, my dream would have been to go to NYU film school. I would have loved to have gone to NYU film school. I think I had that dream at one point. Yeah, I think everyone does. And I I really wanted to be a screenwriter. Oh, I really wanted to be a screenwriter. And uh, I used to write just for fun all the time. And my mom was like, she wasn't a dream crusher, which was really good. Um, But she was a realist. And she said, you know, if you want to do that, okay. But I also have to tell you that when you graduate from film school, I cannot I cannot support you, right? Mm-hmm. I cannot support you. And what kind of life are you going to have? Like, we're not all going to become Martin Scorsese, right? Mm-hmm. Which, of course, is my dream. Um, <laughs> but, you know... Like, are you going to be working in Starbucks? Are you going to be a waitress? Like, is that is that what you want from your life? And I think it's really – I'm sure my mom had a hard time saying that to me because she said it in such a clear and non-derogatory way. Like, what the heck are you doing with your life, right? Um, But it's really hard to tell that to a 17-year-old. Mm-hmm. I think it's extremely hard to tell that to a 17-year-old. Um. Because no one wants to crush their dreams, mm-hmm. right? Um, but when I, I, you know, at Gettysburg, we had first-year seminars. Uh, and they organized the dorms by first-year seminar. And I remember getting the list of seminars that we were supposed to choose from, right? And, oh, there was one on Congress. And there was one on the presidency. And I remember coming across one, and this is the one I ended up taking, on, like, horror literature from the 19th century and i was like yes Mm. i love reading i love i love gothic novels number one um i was like this is totally me and i took it and i you know i also took like two political science classes that semester but you have interests outside of your academic pursuits right And so you want to take the class on Black Mirror, take the class on Black Mirror. You want to take a class on, and I see this all the time, and I tell my students, why don't you take this class? There's a class over in the music department that fills a GEF, I feel like I'm promoting it now, on um, 20th century pop music. And I was like, are you kidding me? You don't want to take this class? Like, I I don't know what's in this class, but that sounds like something I'd like to take. Yeah. Uh, And they're like, oh, but, you know... I'm not arty. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. it's about pop music. Do Mm -hmm. not listen to the radio. Um, Which, okay, maybe I'm uncool because I do listen to the radio. But yeah, yeah, like these kids are, it's almost like, and when I say these kids, it's not all kids, but they're almost scared to go outside their wheelhouse. Yeah. Well, I think there, I think there is a lot of, uh, you know, they, they, to some extent, the ethos has really become to, you know, to, 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 to find yourself on a career path as quickly yes. as possible. Yes. And education has become instrumentalized. Yes. You know, and higher ed has become instrumentalized. And, you know, I think there's there are some good things about that and some bad things about that. But one of the problems, it seems to me, is that it can make the kind of experience that I think that you're describing, that Tara Westover describes here, hard for students to have. Yeah. You know, either because they're not willing to drop the music classes to take the course on the history of the Jews, despite mm-hmm. having felt something yeah. when, when, when thinking about what it would be like to study those things. I agree. Um, or because they think it's trivial, because yeah. it's Black Mirror, it's pop music, or it's just outside of their track that right. they're on. And so it's scary. Um, I, yeah. I, I, you know, and, and I, like I said, that first year seminar, I took that. I don't know what I would do because, I mean, I went to college 20 years ago and it has changed so much. And there's also a different attitude um, at a large state university versus a liberal arts school where you are encouraged to be more open and to have these experiences. Um, And so, you know, I still have that that love of the liberal arts inside of me. But, you know, my husband – so my husband went to school here. And he's a civil engineer. He's very, he has a very engineery kind of brain. Um, he is someone who would have never been interested in taking any of these classes because his his brain also works differently than mine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, his intellectual curiosity plays out in a different way than mine does, right? I am not, um, 
I mean, I'm a problem solver in my own way, but I'm not very mechanical. Yeah. Um, my mind drifts and I dream and I have different thoughts. Uh, and, um, and he doesn't have that background or he doesn't, that's not his tendency. But I do think, and this is something that I struggle with here um, at WVU is especially in Eberly, right? We, we promote this liberal arts thinking and we don't. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, I feel like sometimes we don't, we talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk. Um, and so I, I mean, I understand like as a student, I want to get out of here as fast as I can. I don't want as many student loans as I can, but it's also very hard because we aren't engineers. We aren't accountants. We aren't, you know, my degree is not going to translate directly into a job. Yeah. And I think we do a poor job of, getting our students to understand the skills that they are cultivating. Yeah. When I think about my students and, you know, material interests are in, are good. Mm-hmm. We all have to pay our student loans, right? Yeah. Um, you also have to think about what feeds your soul, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not saying go to film school and become Martin Scorsese, but there has to be something driving you, Yeah. right? Whether it is academia, whether it is law school, whether it is... Uh, teaching, right? Oh, how many students do we lose to teaching because teachers don't make mm-hmm. great money? Mm-hmm. And and it's it's sad. Yeah. Like it's sad that this is this is what we've come to. Um, but yeah, I mean, and and I tell my students this a lot. At 22, 21, 22, you're making decisions for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. and you know, don't be surprised if you get to your late thirties and you're like, oh, I picked the wrong thing. Yeah. You know, I also think that, you know, I'm cusp Gen X millennials. I think millennials and Gen Z are a lot better at at being flexible than (laughs) maybe someone my age or older are. But um, but yeah, I I feel like there's some flexibility and some inflexibility. This podcast is a joint production of the WVU Humanities Center and the DA and produced by Nick Kratzis and Savon Hunter. Copyright 2019.